I bet most of us love an underdog story. Maybe your favorite is Rudy or Rocky or Remember the Titans. I didn't mean for them all to start with R. Maybe you love Daniel LaRusso. Wax on, wax off, the karate kid. Maybe you love the first ever Jamaican bobsled team. Cool runnings. Well, what's common to all of those underdog stories and all the others is that we've kind of developed a common way of speaking about them. It was a real David and Goliath story. We probably all get this to some degree. The small shepherd boy with zero military training is not supposed to be able to defeat the giant warrior who's never lost a battle. But he does. Our expectations don't meet reality in underdog stories. That's what makes them so great. And it turns out our expectations actually often don't match reality. I'm convinced this is why we love the underdog story. I mean, who doesn't love it when Alabama loses it all after they're predicted to be the favorite? But can you picture a time in your own life when your incorrect expectations met up with an even better reality? Have you ever had your expectations exceeded beyond belief? That's what we find for a whole crowd of people in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel. They expected a king to come and deliver them physically and politically from all their national enemies. But in comes Jesus, a king of an altogether different and better character. Let's listen to God's word in Mark chapter 11. I'll start reading in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. From this passage of scripture this morning, I want to convince you to look to Jesus by faith and see him 
as the meek and mighty king of all the earth. So let me give you the whole sermon in one sentence right here. Are you ready? Behold the peculiar glory of Jesus, the Christ, expressed in majesty through meekness. I know that was a long one, but like I said, it's the whole sermon in a sentence. (laughs) So let me say it one more time. Behold. Okay, right there in my notes, I put an exclamation point and a dash. Behold. That's the main thing to do with a sermon like this one. Look. Observe. Examine. Watch and witness. And in this case, it's not something you do with your eyes. It's not physical, but spiritual. It's to fix your attention in a particular way as an act of faith. Okay, behold, the peculiar glory of Jesus, the Christ, expressed in majesty through meekness. That's what I think God would have us, his people, do with Mark 11, 1 to 11. Behold, the peculiar glory of Jesus, the Christ, expressed in majesty through meekness. Our passage this morning is often referred to as the triumphal entry. Everybody just say triumphal entry. I've always wanted to do that. Because Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem before he goes to the cross. But of all the other things uh, in the other Gospels, there aren't very many that all four of them highlight, right? So, you know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There actually aren't many things that all four of them include in their Gospels. And it's really significant when they do. Can you think of some examples of things they include, all four of them in the Gospels? You're probably thinking of the crucifixion. That would be true. The resurrection, that would be true. You might not think of the feeding of the 5,000, but that's in there. This one is too. The triumphal entry. Every single one of them includes it. So evidently, we ought to give careful attention to this scene in Jesus' earthly life. The triumphal entry. One of the aspects of the triumphal entry in Mark that's rather unique is just how perplexing it all is. I mean, as you just heard the passage, or if you read it this week, you might feel it's a bit anticlimactic, like a story without an ending. For most of the triumphal entry in Mark, we don't even see Jesus entering. I mean, he does that at the end of the passage, right in verse 11, but he doesn't exactly arrive to anything spectacular once he gets there. The next scene change in verse 11 is all quiet with only Jesus, having finally entered Jerusalem, but without much to show for it. This perplexing feature of the narrative is what I'm trying to especially draw your attention to this morning, because it reveals something glorious about our Lord Jesus. He's the magnificent, mighty, even majestic one, but we see that most especially put on display in his meekness. So we're going to take Mark's account of the triumphal entry in two sections. First, behold the meekness of the Christ. That's from verses 1 to 6. Behold the meekness of the Christ. 
Second, behold the majesty of the Christ. That's from verses 7 to 11. Behold the majesty of the Christ. Okay, first, behold the meekness of the Christ. Look, look again at verse 1. Mark says, They drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Bethany was a village some two miles outside of Jerusalem on the Jericho Road. Bethphage was a smaller village likely often associated with Bethany. Traditionally, it's been located just before the top of the hill on the way from Bethany. It's a bit like a suburb of Jerusalem. Bethany is where Jesus and the disciples are going to spend the night each day during this next week. And most importantly, from this passage, this is the first and only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus will come to Jerusalem. All right, what am I telling you all the geography for? It's because Jesus is deliberate. This approach to Jerusalem is deliberate. Jesus wants to be witnessed. He desires to be detected. He planned it out so that he would be noticed. He intends to intervene into the minds and hearts of the people. This deliberate action is actually a kind of royal procession outside the city walls because Jesus wants to make sure his arrival is observed. So once again here in Mark, Jesus claims a unique status and authority. We've continued to see this throughout Mark's gospel in the last 10 chapters. But this occasion will provoke the direct challenge of the religious authorities, ultimately leading to Jesus' death. Mark wants you, the reader, to have no doubt that this is the beginning of the final confrontation, the beginning of the end of Mark's account of Jesus' life. Notice something peculiar about the approach. It's in verses 2 and 3. Jesus sends two disciples and says to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. Once again in Mark, we find Jesus knows the future. Because his disciples are going to do exactly what he said they would would do. They're going to come across and encounter exactly what he said they would find. Here, Jesus displays divine foreknowledge of future events. You can see that in verses 4 and 6. The disciples go and find and do exactly what he said they would do. And saints, can I just remind you of something important that I trust you know? Whatever Jesus says to do, do it. No matter how strange it may seem to you, no matter how much you may not want to do it, whatever Jesus says, do it. That's always what's best for you and always what's right to do. That's what the disciples do here. They do what Jesus says. I wonder if it seemed like a strange request to them. I think it would have seemed like a strange request to me. Go get a donkey? Why? They surely didn't connect this yet to Old Testament prophecy. John's gospel tells us as much. John says they didn't understand this until after Jesus' resurrection. They didn't understand, but they did it anyway. 
we should go and do likewise. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Now, in this passage, Jesus is being very specific with them because he's deliberately fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. You can see that in Zechariah 9, verse 9. We heard this whole section in our scripture reading this morning earlier. Listen to that Old Testament prophecy again. If you don't want to turn there, you can go back to page 7 in your bulletin and look at it. I'm just going to read verse 9 again. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The colt in Mark 11 is the donkey of Zechariah 9. Zechariah alerts us to the mission of the Messiah. He is the one who would come and fulfill all of God's promises given to Israel. And he is Jesus. Jesus is the king that they all should have expected. The king any careful Bible reader would expect. But he's also the kind of king they didn't expect. They expected a mighty king who comes in majesty to subdue all of their enemies physically and politically, that the nation of Israel might conquer their enemies, overthrow their oppressors. And it's actually not too surprising that they thought this, is it? If you're still looking in your bulletin, page 7, look at the rest of Zechariah's prophecy after verse 9. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, Today, I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. But King Jesus shows up on the donkey in utter meekness. He rides into the capital city of Israel on the back of a donkey. And he doesn't destroy anybody. Not at this point. Do you remember Mark's ancient audience? Remember who Mark wrote the gospel to initially? In the first century, Mark's writing to Christians in Rome who were suffering under terrible persecution. And he means to encourage them afresh with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. For Jesus, it was suffering, then glory. Jesus' followers, Mark's readers, they knew that the blessing of the kingdom of God, which Jesus proclaimed, differed from the messianic blessings most Jews at the time expected. Followers of the meek King Jesus should expect to deny themselves and take up their cross. 
Be eager to serve everyone as the last, least, and lowest, and be willing to endure terrible persecutions and sufferings. And that's all just from the last three chapters of Mark. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in Mark shows us this. He's the king who comes on a donkey. In fact, the so-called triumphal entry in Mark is not so triumphant after all. This is the feature that's most distinctive in Mark's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. In Mark, as one brother said, it is the lowliness and humility of the entry into Jerusalem which matters, not its triumphal nature. It is a kingship of a hidden majesty, of humble power to save. So we must first behold the meekness of the Christ. Here in our text, Jesus shows off his meekness. He's meek because he does what he does not have to do. Even more than that, he does what is beneath him to do by nature. I mean, the one who hung the stars, who put them in place, he deserves at least a horse and a chariot, right? Not just a single lowly donkey. It's like this. LeBron James, he doesn't come take the court in a wheelchair. That would be strange. Just like I bet you won't go out and find at the store sweatshirt Barbie in sweatpants and hoodie. That doesn't make any sense. Taylor Swift doesn't get to her concerts from a taxi cab or in a beat-up Oldsmobile. Hubcaps falling off. It just doesn't happen. It wouldn't be fitting. It would make no sense. But who could read the Gospels carefully and fail to see the unparalleled meekness of Christ? Though he could feed thousands with a few loaves, he let himself get hungry. Though he could heal the sick and paralyzed, he let himself get weary. Though he could cast out demons, he let himself get tempted. Though he could raise the dead, he himself submitted even to death. Why should the creator and king of the earth ride a donkey? It's because when he stoops down to our level, we can see just how great he is. He does what is beneath him in order to reveal himself to us and to save us. Jesus shows us by his own doing this what his nature is. He shows us his own nature by doing this. John Calvin points this out. He says, Jesus intended to show by a solemn performance what was the nature of his kingdom, to show that it does not resemble earthly kingdoms and does not consist of the fading riches of this world. So it was necessary, Calvin says, for him to take this method. His method is one of voluntary poverty, or in other words, meekness. He didn't come into Jerusalem in a royal chariot with horses and soldiers like the kings of this world. He borrowed a donkey for the occasion. And he borrowed somebody else's clothes for a saddle. But the entry into Jerusalem is not unique for this meekness. 
It's always like this for Jesus. He had to borrow a boat to cross the sea. He had to borrow a beast to ride into the city. He even had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. Don't you see how Jesus is the epitome of what it means to be meek? What is meekness anyway? I like how one Dutch Reformed theologian describes the meek man as having an even-tempered disposition of the heart, which issues forth from union with God, consisting in self-denial and love for his neighbor. His meekness means relinquishing his rights, enduring the violation of his rights without becoming angry, being forgiving, and rewarding it with good. Meekness is a tenderness of heart that comes from a genuine humility. That's what meekness is. This is why in 1828, the original Webster's Dictionary, under the definition of meekness, said this. Jesus alone inculcated meekness. No other ancient philosopher ever understood it or recommended it. No other great thinker in the world at this time understood or recommended meekness. Only Jesus did that. Or at least that's what Webster's Dictionary would have you believe. You know, it strikes me that no politician today runs on the meekness campaign. I mean, have you ever watched any of these presidential debates? Even when they're trying to show humility, they say things like, I'm proud to have cut taxes. I'm proud to have reduced crime. I'm proud to have been the best governor in the history of my state. You get the point. They have to tell you how humble they are. But Jesus is a king who is actually humble. He's the only one who has every right to be confident in his own abilities and power and authority and track record. And yet he's meek. He doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. He considers others more significant than himself, even though we're not. And brothers and sisters, if our Lord is meek, how much more should we be meek? When we behold Jesus by faith, we start to become more like him. You recall my one-sentence summary of the sermon. I hope you wrote it down. Behold the peculiar glory of Jesus, the Christ, expressed in majesty through meekness. See, Jesus has a unique glory as the Christ, not only because of his meekness, but because of the way his majesty is put on display through that meekness. So now, from verses 7 to 11, we need to behold the majesty of the Christ. In case you don't know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. His parents were not Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Christ is not a name, it's an office. Christ is the New Testament word for Messiah, which is the Old Testament word for the same thing. It's the position that Jesus held, it's his job description. He's the one whom God promised to 
to send throughout the Old Testament to save his people, Messiah or Christ. So I've been saying the Christ, maybe a little pedantically, to make this point. It's an office, and it's an office with a peculiar glory. There's no one quite like Jesus. He's unique because he alone expresses his majesty through meekness. We've looked to his meekness, now let's look at his majesty. Listen again to the passage starting in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. We can see his majesty in this passage, both in what the crowd is doing and in what they are declaring. In verses 7 and 8, we see what they're doing. The disciples put cloaks on the donkey, and the crowd put their cloaks and some branches on the ground. Now, you could probably argue that he needs some sort of saddle to sit on, but the cloaks on the ground and the branches on the ground, they're as unnecessary as they are extravagant. It's like rolling out the red carpet, if you will. This is the kind of king who, though he would never demand it, deserves a red carpet. He's the king of kings, so he needs a red carpet for the red carpet, if you will. He's that magnificent. His glory is that great. And in verses 9 and 10, we can hear them declaring this. They have him surrounded, and they're all shouting. What are they saying? Hosanna! What does that mean? Augustine says, Hosanna is a word of supplicating. That's like begging, or pleading, or imploring, or longing. It's more like declaring a feeling than actually saying something. He compares it to saying, oh, what a great thing. The outburst, oh, in that sentence, it just shows you how amazed the person speaking is. It doesn't actually say anything. But there's also some rich biblical significance to this word, Hosanna. If you were to go back in your Bibles to Psalm 118, you'd see this, especially in verses 25 and 26 be a good reference to write down for later. In Psalm 118, the psalmist cries out, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The word Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, verse 25, and literally means, save us now, or save us, we pray. What's important about this particular psalm, though, is that it's the last of what are called the Hallel Psalms. These psalms are recited at all of the major Jewish festivals in Jerusalem. You realize what this means, right? Right before Passover, one of the most important Jewish festivals at this time, all of these people are shouting about how Jesus 
is the one who comes in the name of the Lord to save God's people. They just don't recognize how right they are. Jesus would save. That's what he came to do. Remember that song, Crown Him with Many Crowns, we were singing this morning? It struck me as we were singing it. What does it say? His glories, now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives so that death may die. That's how Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who dies to bring us life and then rises and lives forever to kill death. See, they don't realize how right they are. We Christians, we talk about this this word gospel, which means good news. What I just read you from Crown Him with Many Crowns, that's good news. That's good news for anybody. Because we've all sinned against God. Just like we confessed this morning our sins against God, who wasn't convicted by that prayer of confession? I mean, he touched on stuff I still suffer from and struggle with. And I bet he did for you too. The point is that the Bible calls that sin and it points it out to us because it shows us we're not living the way God wants us to live. Which means we're actually living in a way that leads to our own destruction. God's good word points out the way to life and flourishing and we ignore him, shut up our ears, close our eyes and decide to do what we want instead. And God, if he's going to be good, should judge us for that. If you want justice from God, you want him to judge you because you've sinned and I've sinned. He should deal with sin by punishing it forever. This is why who Jesus is and what he does is good news. Because if Jesus lives a perfect life, never sinning, dies on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me and rises from the dead killing death, then he can offer you the same thing. And he does offer that to you. If you'll turn from your own sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you, I promise. He's the one who dies to give life and rises and lives to kill death. That's good news. So this crowd is shouting for God to save them. And they're shouting it to Jesus, the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. But that's not all they're shouting. They're also yelling, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You can see that in verse 10. Remember last week when Barak preached on blind Bartimaeus? It's in the previous passage in Mark, Mark 10 verses 46 to 52. How did Bartimaeus refer to Jesus there? If you know it, just shout it out. Son of David. That's right. That's exactly right. Or we could just call him the Christ. Because a Jew at this time would have said that too. Son of David is interchangeable with Christ. They mean the same thing. It's not a name, but an office. So Jesus was just identified as the son of David. And now this whole crowd of people who are surrounding him, they're echoing the blind man's good judgment. What began with one man grows into a large, loud crowd. They react to Jesus 
with great enthusiasm. But why do they rejoice at his coming? It has to do with what they think he's bringing them. You can see it in verse 10. What do they expect him to bring? It's clear. They're glad Jesus is bringing the kingdom of their father. And it's clearer still from the following chapters of Mark's gospel that Jesus doesn't bring the kingdom they expected. So their enthusiasm here is mixed with confusion about what Jesus is ultimately up to. Here's the son of David riding into the city of David to establish the kingdom of David and sit on David's throne forever. So they must have political visions and illusions. They want Jesus to restore Israel to national sovereignty. They don't want a meek king who comes lowly on a donkey. They want a sovereign political ruler to be king of the Jews. See, they think Jesus came to fix Israel's broken politics. They want the kingdom of David, not the kingdom of God. But his kingdom is not of this world or like this world. Jesus doesn't rule by military force or political power, and Jesus didn't come to fix politics. He came to forgive sinners. He didn't come to fix their politics, but to forgive their sins. And church, he didn't come to fix our politics either. It's as Calvin said, when we pray to God to maintain his son as our king, we acknowledge that this kingdom was not erected by men and is not upheld by the power of men, but remains invincible through heavenly protection. Listen, it's a good thing to be an American. I'm even proud to be one, if I'm honest. But we shouldn't think that Jesus needs America or that he came to strengthen or establish America. Loving your country is a good thing to do. But there's a danger of loving something too much. Even loving something good too much. Love of country that is greater than love for the Savior is a problem. The way to love our country best is to love it in proper proportion to Jesus. To love him more than anything else and to love everything else in light of following him. What this means in our day is being especially clear about who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, and what he came to do. He didn't come to fix politics. He came to forgive sins. And brothers and sisters, this reality should humble us in all of our political efforts and hopes. It should remind us that we wait for a kingdom that is still to come, a glorious kingdom that can't be shaken. That's where our most important citizenship lies anyway. Here in Mark 11, Jesus comes as king of the Jews. And yes, he's bringing the kingdom of David. But the glory of this king and his kingdom far exceeds the expectations and hopes of this crowd. This king comes in riding 
on a donkey. This king doesn't rule militarily or violently. His majesty is expressed through meekness. He rules first spiritually. He rules in the hearts of his people. He subdues our rebellious wills to accomplish his righteous one, restraining our evil and establishing his glory and goodness. He's certainly the son of David. And he does sit on David's throne even now. But it will be his second coming, which brings a final end to his enemies. This crowd understands something of who Jesus is, but they have only part of the whole picture. If we want to behold our meek and mighty king fully, we'll have to look forward from here to his second coming. Friends, Jesus is gentle and lowly, and he will save anyone who comes to him by faith. Even now, the Lord Jesus Christ is holding out his hands and asking, if you will turn from sin and trust in me, I will save you. But that offer will expire. His patience will run out. He is long-suffering, abundantly patient, but there is a day coming when the patience of Christ will come to an end. One day, he'll come again to call everybody to justice for their sins. He'll come to conquer his enemies and rescue his people. This triumphal entry, it just points us forward to that day, the last day. The first coming of Jesus points us to the second coming. The crucified king will come again as the conquering king. On that day, he won't come as the victim, but as the victor. On that day, he won't ride a donkey, but a white horse. On that day, he won't come to die, but to deliver his people fully and finally. And on that day, he's not coming merely to one nation, but for all the nations. On that day, he's not going to be entering Jerusalem, but bringing a new Jerusalem, one for us to dwell with him in forever. That will be a real triumphal entry. So let's pray to our meek and mighty king now. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word to us in Mark 11 this morning. And we pray that we would bow the knee to you in all of our days for all of our lives. Would you help us to see you as meek and to see ourselves in your service? We know, Lord, that you did not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Help us to live in light of that truth, we pray. Amen.